Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am your host, Scott Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. If the topic is leadership, I'm in. I've spent more than 20 years in the field teaching, learning, writing, and questioning. When I'm not working on Phrenesis, I travel, delivering keynotes, working with individuals and teams, and helping people from organizations across industries become better leaders. Want to learn more? Visit me at scottjallen.net. Phrenesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership. We explore relevant topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Listen Notes lists Phrenesis in the top 3% of podcasts worldwide. Phrenesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, ILA brings together those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge, and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. Finally, if you enjoy Phrenesis, please subscribe to stay current on our weekly episodes. Finally, if you enjoy Phrenesis, please subscribe to stay current on our weekly episodes. If you find an episode that resonates, please share it with your colleagues and friends. And if you want more content, subscribe to my newsletter, The Leader's Edge. The link is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. And now, here's today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis Podcast. Thank you so much for checking in wherever you are in the world. We have a returning guest today. Really looking forward to this conversation. Dr. Henry Mintzberg is a name known by many. He's a writer and an educator. Most of his work focuses on managing organizations, developing managers, and rebalancing societies. After receiving his bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from McGill University in Montreal, working in operational research for the Canadian National Railways, and doing his master's and PhD at the MIT Sloan School of Management, he made his professional home at McGill. He's had extensive visiting professorships at INSEAD in France, and the London Business School in England. He has authored more than 20 books, including Managers Not MBAs, Simply Managing, Rebalancing Society, and Managing the Myths of Healthcare. He's also authored 180 articles, plus numerous commentaries and videos. He publishes a regular TWOG, which is Tweet to Blog, as provocative fun in a page or two beyond pithy pronouncements in a line or two. And a collection has recently been published under the title Bedtime Stories for Managers, and he's just released Understanding Organizations Finally. He is an outdoorsman. Before we started recording, we talked about his adventures climbing Mount Baker. And as we discussed last time, he is a collector of beaver sculptures. So if you want to know about beaver sculptures, you have to listen to the first conversation with Dr. Henry Mintzberg. Sir, Thank you so much for being here today. What is new in your neck of the woods? And I mean that literally. My neck of the woods is in the Laurentian Mountains, north of Montreal, for the most part. And what's new is that the snow is old (laughs) and it's melting. But what's new is we kind of moved up here during COVID and kind of never left. We keep an apartment in town in Montreal, but we're up here most of the time. And I'm trying to rebalance society still. The world just won't listen. I don't know why. Well, I am so excited for this conversation today. You have a new, well, you have a couple new books, but let's maybe start with 
Understanding organizations, finally. What are a couple themes that you want listeners to know about that you explore in this latest book, sir? Well, the first thing is we just don't understand organizations. Strangely enough, we live in them. You know, if you figure out the number of organizations that we function with every day of our lives, how many organizations are connecting you and I together right now, Scott? Probably six or eight. If you think of all the phone companies and laptops and and your organization and McGill and everything else. So we live in organizations, we function in organizations, yet we don't understand them. You want to understand yourself, just walk, go into a bookstore and go inside, into the psychology section. You want to understand the economy, open any blog or newspaper. You want to understand organizations, where do you go? So I wrote Understanding Organizations, finally. That's the main point. That's the number one point. Second one is we mix them all up. We mix, you know, we got consultants coming into hospitals pretending they're like factories, which actually is a quote from Harvard's best known professor of healthcare who said hospitals are focused factories. Well, I don't know if you want your heart to be uh, transplanted in a focused factory. I don't. <laughs> um, you know, we mix up orchestras and airlines. We just, we, we get them all mixed up. And so the, third point I'd make is the book is essentially about basic forms of organizations. And I call them personal, program, professional, and project. Take us through those. Take us through those, sir. So personal, we all know it's entrepreneurial companies or really any startup, even in business or even in government or, or NGOs. You know, organizations as they start up center around an individual who are creating them. So I call it a personal organization. You know, Steve Jobs at Apple, you know, a classic example, although clearly it functioned as a project organization, but he was really dead center with regard to to what it was doing. Programmed organization is your corner uh, McDonald's or fast food company. Everything's programmed. McDonald's has us programmed, for goodness sakes. You know, we clear our tables. <laughs> Imagine that. We're programmed by the, by that machine. So I call it the program machine. And by the example of a personal organization in restaurants would be your corner greasy spoon where the boss is doing everything. The professional organization, or I call it the professional assembly, because it's kind of an assembly of all these professionals working independently, like in a university or a hospital, where the physicians or the professors are largely working on their own. And baseball's kind of like that. You know, in a double play, it's highly coordinated, but they're, they're separate from each other. In baseball, everybody's separate. Perfect sport to play during COVID. Everybody's separate except around the uh, home plate where the umpire and the uh, and the batter and the uh, catcher are together. But otherwise, everybody's separate. And then project organization is uh, high tech where many things are project. Film companies, construction companies. And in sports, hockey, basketball, and soccer are all project organizations. When you pick up the ball or the puck, at one end, it's like a new project. You never know how it's going to unfold. Think of how different football is. American, by the way, American football is Canadian. Football was invented at McGill, my own university. But but North American football is the ultimate program sport. Everything is programmed. You've got a hierarchy on the field. Everybody's lined up. Even the cheerleaders are lined up. Everything's programmed. Very different from from baseball. Very different from hockey and so on personal organization is skippering a, a World Cup yacht race. You know, the, the owner 
kind of is involved in design and the construction and the skippering and everything. Well, I love how your mind kind of thinks about the world because you're very, you're just so skilled at putting things into different places and helping us make sense of, well, let's see, how would I phrase this? And it's not different buckets, but it's just different categories. And then we can almost look at them as object and look at them a little bit differently. And so what is the ramifications of seeing these organizations, these four distinct types of organizations? What does that mean? Well, for one thing, don't try and run one like the other. You know, one of the business schools here in Quebec years ago hired a, the president of a trucking company to be the dean of business. You can imagine what that did to the place. You know, the good trucker uh, professors left and the others stayed. He, he, you know, he, he didn't understand the difference. Uh, boards of hospitals often don't understand that these are professional organizations. They're not like mass production companies or retail stores or whatever. So the key thing is you've got to appreciate and understand those differences in order to manage them. Uh, on the other hand, you can never be a pure one of any of those things. You you can't be a pure program machine without any project anywhere. After all, you have advertising campaigns in McDonald's, so you do have projects, but you can appreciate that many organizations veer very much, the post office, retail banking, veer to one program, and investment banking, much more project, and, and plenty of hybrids. You know, a symphony orchestra is kind of, you know, famous for being a, for the orchestra, the maestro on the platform, but but that's nonsense. It's not that you know the the real leadership takes place in the rehearsals, not in the performance. In the performance, they're an absolute professional organization. Everybody plays to the notes that were written by Tchaikovsky. They don't play to what the conductors ask them to play to. They're playing to what Tchaikovsky wrote for their instrument. So they're almost playing a part even though they're all playing together. So what are some different management approaches that need to be considered for each one of these? So if it's a if it's a personal organization, what are some ways of thinking about that organization or managing that organization that are unique? Well, you, typically you're trying to put the organization in the niche. If it's a new entrepreneurial company, for example, you don't want to imitate the big companies. That's not going to get you anywhere. You mm. beat the big companies. You beat the big machines by being different. So the vision of the entrepreneur is absolutely key, and no better example than Steve Jobs, who took Apple completely away from where everybody else was in order to sort of solidify it in its own niche. And to this day, that strategy still holds very strongly. So, you know, if you're running a machine, the key is efficiency. You don't want creativity from your hotel. You don't want come into your room and a jack-in-the-box jumps up and says, welcome. You don't want that. You want your wake-up call to come in 800, not 801. That's a machine organization. Whereas in a project organization, you don't want efficiency. You want creativity. You want innovation. Efficiency kills the project organization because it squeezes out all the creativity, whereas in a professional organization, it's proficiency that you want, not efficiency. You don't want the most efficient operation in the hospital. You want the most proficient operation in a hospital. You want really, really skilled people, and you don't care if they have to take a little longer to do it right. That's a great, a great way of thinking about it. So what do you see 
managers doing incorrectly? Essentially, my assumption is that a big part of that answer is you have the wrong management approach for the type of organization we're in. What other common mistakes are you seeing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you tell the chief executive of a project organization, like a French software company that I studied, you know, don't get involved in the details. Well, this guy I watched, they had a a new project coming up to do some software for the French post office. And I was observing him and here he was attending a meeting of that project. And I kind of said, well, you know, why are you attending the meeting of the project? He was the chief operating officer. And he said, because it's something new, it's going to set a precedent, and I have to be there to understand it and help influence it. So in a project organization, your eyes on particular projects that could take the organization somewhere. Whereas in a in a machine organization, you just want to make sure everything is absolutely, utterly efficient. So you're you're going to manage it very differently from, say, a professional organization. You can't tell the professors in a university what to do. You can't tell the doctors in a hospital what to do, but you can tell the workers on the assembly line what to do, or at least you've got people who are studying their work in detail and telling them what to do. So it's a very different mentality. Don't mix them up. You know, hospitals are not focused factories. Anything else from understanding organizations before we move to bedtime stories that you really want people to be aware of as somewhat of a a teaser so that they purchase the book? Well, I think the sort of the most interesting change in organizations in recent times, I don't mean today or yesterday, because anybody who says to me, you know, what's the latest, hottest thing in organization design? I say, forget it, it's probably wrong. And it's certainly not right for everybody. There's no one best way. Yeah, That's a very important message. There's no one best way. What we're seeing a lot of in the last 20, 30 years is what I call organizations going outward bound. You know, companies used to do a lot of vertically integrating and and diversifying, but they did it in a way that their boundaries were absolutely rigid. When they vertically integrated and sort of, you know, bought their own suppliers or created their own customers, they brought them inside their existing boundaries. Same thing with diversification. General Motors, General Electric diversified, but within the structure of General Electric, Okay. What we've been seeing in recent years is all organizations going outward bound, you know, platform organizations and outsourcing and networking and joint ventures. There's a whole chapter on that whole array of things and how they look together, you know, a a whole different set of arrangements organizations make for going outward bound. And the last message in the book is what I call design doing, you know, been very popular to talk about design thinking. But I had some correspondence with a guy who came up with that. And and I said, it's not really design thinking, it's design doing. You learn how to design organizations by trying things, not by sitting in an office and telling everybody how they should be reporting, but rather you let things evolve by themselves. You know, the best parks are not the ones that are paved by the architects. So people have to walk in an S. They're paved by the people. If you want to know where to put the pathways in a park, put no pathways in, see where the people walk, and then pave where they walk. Same thing with organization design. Let people figure out to the extent possible how they want to work with each other, how they have to work with each other, and then pave those relationships. 
Hmm. So bedtime stories. Tell us about that. Bedtime stories for managers. Yeah. Well, I do a blog, mintsburg.org slash blog, and and a lot of them are about management. So I took about 40 of the best ones and I published them as a book called Bedtime Stories for Managers, because you can you can read them. Uh they're all two, three pages or whatever, not too long. So it's a good thing to read before you go to bed. So for example, the first one is about managing like scrambled eggs. And it, it's the story of Eastern Airlines that used to be the biggest airline in the world. One time I took a breakfast flight from Montreal to New York and they served these things they called scrambled eggs. And, and I said to the flight attendant, you got to be kidding. I've eaten bad food, but this takes the cakes. And she said, I know we keep telling them they won't listen. Now, if you're running a cemetery, I can understand if you don't listen to your customers. But if you're running an airline, how could you not know? And of course, the reason you didn't know was explained to me by somebody from IBM who came up to me after I talked about this. And he said, you know, the president of Eastern Airlines was late for a plane and he came running in at the last minute and they bumped a paying passenger so he could sit in business class where he was used to sitting. Uh, and so he wanted to apologize to the customer. So he went over and said, found them in economy class somewhere and said, you know, I'm so sorry and so on. I'm, you know, he introduced himself and the customer said, well, I'm John Akers, president of IBM. The moral of the story is, if you're running an airline or anything like that, any retailing, almost anything, you can find, you can have your customer's experience. You shouldn't be sitting in business class any more than you should be sitting in economy class. You need to find out what all your customers are thinking. So I think Eastern Airlines went bankrupt because of the scrambled eggs. And the scrambled eggs were there because the president never ate them. <laughs> and if you don't eat your scrambled eggs, you can't run your company. Anyway, that's the first story. There's 30, 40 more, 43 more, I think. Give me one or two others. So there's one called Organizing Like a Cow. And there was a famous ad, so again, a software company, as it happens, that showed a picture of a cow with the parts sort of uh, that are that are butchered shown on the cow. You know what I mean? Like drawing, lines drawn on the cow. And it said... Uh, it said, this is not a cow. This is an organization chart of a cow. And do you want your organization to run like a chart or like a cow? And I thought that was absolutely brilliant because we do these charts so that our organizations can run like charts instead of running like cows. Cows don't have any trouble, as they say in the ad. Cows don't have trouble integrating their parts. The, the heart and the lungs and the bowels and everything else work beautifully together. Okay, so why can't our organizations work like that? You know, I mean, you know, if we as human beings function like that as well, then why, when we get together socially in an organization, do we have so much trouble coordinating? So this idea of, of, of thinking of yourself as organizing like a cow and growing strategies like weeds in the garden. You know, we think strategic planning is an oxymoron, okay? We don't plan strategies. We learn strategies. You learn strategies by trying things and doing things. You know why K is in the knockdown, you know, in the unassembled furniture business? Because a worker tried to put a, a table in his car and it didn't fit. So he took the legs off, okay, to get it in his car. And then came the critical moment there by that car. That's where the strategy started. 
Somebody said, hey, wait a minute, if we have to take the legs off, so do our customers. And that was the critical strategic moment. That's how strategies form, okay? They're learned. It took IKEA, by the way, 15 years to get it all right. You know, imagine how much time just to get those little devices you had to put in the hole to grab a screw, you know? So we have to appreciate that we learn strategies on the ground. We learn by interacting with our customers. We don't plan strategies. Strategies are weeds in a way. They grow like weeds in a garden, you know, except that, you know, the most notorious weed in our part of the world is the dandelion. But in Europe, they drink wine made out of dandelions. You know, they eat salads made out of dandelion leaves. So it's only a weed because you don't want it. And when you recognize that you're doing something, say, hey, wait a minute, we could be wanting this instead of treating it like a weed. Well, planning processes don't focus on weeds or find them. Learning processes focus on weeds and find them. Well, again, I just love how your mind sees the world and the connections that you make between scrambled eggs and the death of an airline. <laughs> if you ate those eggs, you'd know. Oh, you know what? There's a turkey walking. This is amazing. There's a huge turkey that survived the winter walking by. And you know what? It's alone and it's huge. And there were seven of them in the fall. Wow. Yeah. Six of them, I guess, made a good Christmas dinner or whatever. They're wild turkeys. Well, I would love to go to a couple of places that are somewhat not not necessarily provocative. I just think you have such a wonderful perspective on any number of topics. And so you've at times railed on the concept of leadership, 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 leadership. Would you talk a little bit about kind of how you see that topic that and, and some of the downsides of such an incredible focus on leadership? I mean, this this podcast is by by all means, called Practical Wisdom for Leaders. And so maybe I'm part of the problem. <laughs> well, well, you, you know, if you use the word leader or leadership, you have in your mind a single individual. Uh, we don't use the word leaders or leadership collectively. We use the word leadership individually. So the focus is on the single person. Even if that person is trying to engage other people, it's still the mighty one, the important one, the key one, and so on and so forth. I prefer the word community-ship, which is also discussed in both books. I prefer the word community-ship, which means that organizations that function well are communities, and the leadership, the, the individual leader of the organization is responsible for supporting and enhancing that community-ship. So I think community-ship in established, in new organizations, yeah, you've got a lot more emphasis on the leader, but in established organizations, community-ship is really key, and we need to recognize that. The idea that came years ago that leaders are somehow more important than managers has been horribly dysfunctional, mm. horribly dysfunctional. Do you want a manager who doesn't lead? Who wants to be managed by somebody who doesn't lead? Do you want a leader who doesn't manage, who doesn't know what's going on, who's not in touch? That's the kind of leadership we're getting more and more. People who are disconnected, reading financial statements, they're not on the ground. They're not finding out. You know, it was the chief executive of IKEA who was right next to that guy taking the legs off that table, by the way. He happened to be there, changed his company. So it's a whole different philosophy. When you look at leadership and management together, it's a whole different philosophy. It's in touch. It's on the ground, you know. 
So it's both that are that are critical. But then yeah. this, this this community ship. Talk a little bit more about how you think about that concept. Well, you know, being a part of a community is essential to all of us. In fact, part of the social problem in today is that people are disconnected from their communities. A lot of these people are involved with gun violence or whatever are mainly uh, what's the word isolated or yeah, I'm thinking of the other word, but. Yeah, they're they're isolated. They're disconnected. They're they're alienated. They're alienated from others. They may connect on the web, but that's not a community. You know, your your gang on the web is a network. It's not a community. And by the way, if you want to know the difference between a network and a community, just try and get your Facebook friends to help you paint your house. You know, or rebuild your barn. Networks are not communities, but communities are critical to all of us. And when we go into work. And and we're interacting with a bunch of people who we know and have gotten to know and gotten to like and so on. It makes a huge difference, which, by the way, is a major difference with people working exclusively at home. It disconnects them from their community, their work community. It's okay to do it for some, some days of the week, but you've got to be in, you know, back in the office or, or the factory or wherever it is you're working, the hospital, or whatever. You have to be there inside. Well, and to your point, I mean, I've had some really fun conversations in recent episodes with Meg Wheatley, for instance, who talks a lot about community right now. And Mike Muscolo, who's a social psychologist, talking about that need for community and that today we're lacking in community. Absolutely. Well, I think you missed your calling. You've done okay in this whole management thing. You've done okay in this field, but I think you could have been a comedian. I think there was a potential other path, sir. <laughs> I'm a comedian for the people around me. Actually, a number of people say that on, what they like most or a lot about understanding organizations is the humor in the book. You know, at one point I say, I'm trying to write this in a breezy tone, and then I put in parentheses, how am I doing so far? <laughs> and, there's, and there's that kind of stuff throughout the book. So people actually like that. Look, it's a, it's not a heavy subject, but it's a, it's an important subject. And uh, lightening it up makes it easier for people to understand. I agree. I agree. Well, anything else that you have on your mind these days that keep you uh, occupied that you want to touch on before we begin to wind down our time, sir? You know, what's on my mind today is rebalancing society and what's going on in the world today. And the superpowers are back to taking dangerous moves like China and so on. And we've got to somehow rethink, you know, that's my rebalancing society effort, a website called rebalancingsociety.org. We've, we've got to find a balance across what I call not just public versus private and government versus business, but a balance across government, business and community. I call them public, private and plural. Community is a very plural kind of sector. And we need to balance. And, and a lot of what I'm doing, so people could have a look at that website, rebalancingsociety.org. It's an important, and again, another just really wonderful way of looking at, I think in, in our previous conversation, I think maybe I called the episode something like, because you had said it, you know, what's wrong with us? What's yeah. going on? And, yeah. you know, I think your your notion and your kind of thinking around the fact that we're out of balance I think that's another really important concept to think about that that community is lacking 
And then are we out of balance as a society? And at last time when we were speaking, I mean, you, you touched on some some countries that are more in balance. And of course, there's greater levels of health across the board, right? Absolutely. And there's there's recent evidence now, some new evidence that the stronger the sense of community, the healthier the society, the healthier the people. Well, and it's going to be interesting to watch it play out as technology continues to advance at an ever increasing rate. You know, do we move into a ready player one society or do we crave that person to person connection? And it's probably a both end, but how do we fuel that person to person connection and prioritize that in our communities so that people have those connections and have that meaning in their lives? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You had also, last time you were, you were with me, you had talked about Harari's book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Yeah, 21 century. Lessons for the 21st Century. Yeah, Harari's book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And I have to say, thank you for that recommendation. That was an incredible read. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he's, he's brilliant, isn't he? He's brilliant. You know, I just did a piece called What is Dumbing Us Down? It's in CEO World. And I give up four different reasons for what seems to be dumbing us down. Two of them I call social. One is the lack of community I mentioned, and the other is pace of life. Two I call toxins. One are the chemical toxins, the things we inhale and ingest and absorb. And the other I call electronic toxins, like the fact that we're swimming in this stew of so many binary bits all around us. (laughs) But the fifth one, so the fifth one comes from Harari, and and he says, he doesn't address the question quite the way, but in effect, he, he addresses the question. And he says, the farther we get from nature, the more we lose it. And all four, the toxins and the social ones, all four of them are really getting farther and farther away from nature. Mm-hmm. So here I am in the country talking to you. <laughs> yeah, with nature right out the door and the turkey walking by. <laughs> Well, and I mentioned Meg Wheatley. She has a new book coming out called Who Do We Choose to Be? And probably very purposely, we have a a picture of Devil's Tower in, in, in Wyoming, just that beautiful structure. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to visit that location, but it's just she's a huge fan of the national parks. And I know that she would agree wholeheartedly with that need to be in nature and to be connected to nature. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Doctor, it is so fun to uh, connect with you, to learn with you, to laugh at your your stories and to connect with your humor. And again, I just really appreciate your perspective on some of what's swirling around us. And again, you have a wonderful way of helping us make sense of some of those elements swirling around us. And thank you for your incredible work. Thank you, Scott, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Be well. Take care. Go see how the turkey's doing. And we we will talk again soon, sir. (laughs) Okay, Scott. You too. Keep well. I think for some listeners, it may feel like we didn't have the time or take the time to go in-depth on any one of those topics that we covered. I mean, it was a lot of different kind of ground that we covered in that conversation. But I wanted to paint a picture for listeners as to just the breadth of how Dr. Henry Mintzberg thinks and hopefully entice you to explore his blog 
explore his books, explore his writings. Because again, he's just a fascinating individual who is constantly, I think of a Barbara Kellerman who is constantly blogging and just staying productive. Dr. Mintzberg is doing the exact same thing. His mind is constantly working and working to make sense of what's swirling around us. So I hope you enjoyed that sampler platter. And to Dr. Mintzberg, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate you being with me. And as always, uh, thanks to all of you for checking in and listening to Phrenesis. Be well, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I'm also on LinkedIn, so let's connect. If you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. And now here's my daughter, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.